After each mass shooting in Colorado, the long list of survivors grows. People whose lives change by what they experience. And it took a lot of soul-searching to see if I wanted to go back into a bar environment. It's definitely been weirdly healing to go into a bar and go to work in a bar. This is Colorado In-Depth, a podcast of special reporting from CPR News. Today, four people who've spent the past year figuring out life after the shooting at Club Q. How it's changed each of them and their futures. I was the one who first uh, took down the shooter. Most people don't really know about me because I, uh, I chose my uh, seclusion over anything else. Abigail Beckman from our partner KRCC shares their intimate stories in their own words. Their stories remind us that there is no going back to normal and that for each of us, survival has its own meaning. A warning to listeners, at times, these stories involve descriptions of violence. I'm a reporter in Colorado Springs. In the days after the shooting in November 2022, we all rushed to try to understand it. And people got put into categories with labels like LGBTQ, and they were defined as a group called survivors or victims— But it was really in the months afterwards that I got to know more details about the individual stories of some of the people who were there that night. None is identical. They can't be defined by just the violence that they endured. And over the summer, I was in touch with several people who were there that night. We talked about the need to share their experience, but only if they were comfortable with it. So I opened the door to see who would walk through. I hope sharing their stories will help them get back a little bit of their individuality and some independence. These people are all so much more than survivors of Club Q. It's a really big responsibility to present these stories. And for months, I went back and forth about how this process could re-traumatize people, you know, recounting one of the worst nights of their lives. But I keep coming back to what someone who was at Club Q said to me. They said, all we hear about in the news is the shooter. But we're all still here. So now, Thomas James, Svetlana Heim, John Arcidiano, and Ashton Gamblin will speak to you in their words, without me or a narrator or a reporter interjecting. They want to speak to you to share what they've been through. Here's Thomas. Hello, my name is Thomas James. I was the one who first uh, took down the shooter. Most people don't really know about me because I uh, chose my seclusion over anything else. I was uh, at the club that night in the smoking section, a uh, small patio in the back of the club, talking with a friend of mine. And at first, when I heard the gunshots, I thought it was simply a part of the beat. And then the screaming started. And I looked my friends in the eyes, and um, we started trying to move. I initially went to open the shutter. Uh, There was a shutter cutting off a part of it that we could try and get a way through. It would take us uh, deeper into the patio, um, but I believe there was a door that um, led out for uh, fire exits, if I can recall right. But I had no clue how to open it, so rather than fiddle with that further, I uh, chose to uh, confront the shooter 
and was able to uh, pin them down for roughly 90 seconds. There was a lot of screaming. Um, the dance floor itself had cleared out at that point. It was a lot of, most of it was tunnel vision, charging in, then getting shot, and then uh, proceeding to wrestle them down, and then fighting further. At, uh, one point it felt just like a really bad dream, just because the club lights were still going and the music was still going and I was bleeding and the assailant was bleeding. And If I had to say, I feel like it was all instinct. Um, when I uh, went in there, there was no real plan. I mean, there was obvious stuff. Get the gun away from them, swing as hard as I can, just buy my friends um, some time. It was really the only thing that just kept playing on my head in a loop. The weirdest thing, I guess, I think about that night is a, a pair of glasses that I had lost. So I was being pulled off of the assailant. I guess the panic and all that, just the shock of it all made me think about the most inconsequential stuff at that time. But uh, the police reaction, um, finding, like, I guess someone more trained was a, was a relief. I feel like uh, some people have put me on a pedestal that I've really tried to avoid throughout all of this. Calling me hero is a little off-putting for me. Some people have gotten the message to like let me sort things out as I go. Other people, not so much, but I, uh, I've been trying to take it as it comes. And uh, for the most part, I just want to try and remind people I'm the same as them, just waking up in the morning, trying to get out and work, you know. It's no secret I am in the military. I guess when um, I look at how active service members are treated sometimes, where it's just a passing, like, thank you for your service and all of that, um, until, like, uh, the bill is due and we have uh, veterans that need help and service members come back suffering PTSD symptoms and everything, we're experiencing that. And when it's time to really support the troops, there's not so much support there. So when I think about the phrase hero, I think of it from that perspective. It's easy to call someone a hero. It's harder to support the hero when you find out they aren't necessarily heroic. I've never been big on like labeling myself just one thing. So sailor, part of the LGBTQ plus community, BIPOC, just all these different labels. I never really liked having just one of those. I believe people have layers, multitudes, so. As a way to help with the grief, I took up painting. My uh, therapist recommended it, and um, I don't really like portraiture. I do more um, abstractions and, um, I guess, feelings and thoughts. I painted uh, five spirits in uh, black with uh, five hearts. The eyes kind of swiped with a stroke of white over them just to kind of symbolize the souls lost. Um, I donated it to a friend of mine, so I'm hoping to paint another, and then um, I'll keep that for myself. I feel like in some parts, it's hard for me to figure out who to trust nowadays. Um, as I mentioned, the hero talk and the parading around, it feels like some people reached out only when I was finally ready to talk kind of dictate my narrative. When I was on convalescently for a month and a half, 
I had one friend come by on the regular, and even still, I was mostly drunk. Not many other calls, not many other uh, visits. They all kind of scattered. My leadership was there, basically my rock, one of my sergeants, uh, more than anything. He was the first person I called when I was shot. But uh, this made me sit back and kind of think about who I let into my life. I've noticed this kind of schism in the community right now. On one side, you have survivors feeling they haven't been properly supported between the Colorado Healing Fund, the center, I guess at Colfax, and I guess, you know, sister, brother communities out in the state. And then you have the club owners who we feel have been uh, neglecting survivors and looking to profit off of that. And at one point, I had um, picked the side of the survivors, and then I felt like I was just widening that schism. But I can't in good conscience side with a company that I feel is trying to profiteer off of death. So I've kind of absolved myself and am hoping to find a third option in time. I was shot in the chest, thankfully. Uh, it ricocheted off of a rib that led to a uh, collapsed lung. And two years prior, I had broken my foot, and the events of that night kind of exacerbated it. Spent a week in the hospital. While my ankle has improved considerably, there's no guarantee that it won't flare up again, the gunshot wound, and then just overall, the uh, symptoms of the PTSD of that night have put me in a rough position to continue my work. I was gonna do uh, my last deployment on a ship after here, and then um, just settle in but uh, this really changed my whole perspective on what I want to do next. I've realized how short life can get, and I have to start making moves now to find what I really, really want. Uh, I've thought about getting my CDL to uh, do uh, trucking locally. I've always enjoyed driving, so um, that would be a nice change of pace. If I somehow managed to make a profession of art, that would be, I guess, uh, the best. I did what I had to do because it was the right thing. And every accolade that came after was something I could do without. I'd trade every award for that night to never happen. But uh, fortunately, it's not a thing I can do. Thomas James mentioned a couple of organizations that have upset some Club Q survivors. The Colorado Healing Fund is a nonprofit, and it stands by its model for how it distributes funds. Also, Thomas isn't the only person that you'll hear from who's critical of Club Q's owners. Two of the people now managing the club are survivors themselves, which highlights how every individual involved has different needs and wants. The five people who were killed at Club Q are Raymond Green Vance, he was 22. Daniel Aston was 28. Ashley Paw was 35. Kelly Loving was 40. And Derek Rump 
was 38 years old. One of Derek's close friends at the club that night was Svetlana Heim. She was at work, and she gave Derek medical care in the moments after he was shot. Mass shootings are something I'm like, I already graduated high school, I'll be fine. And then, you know, you become so desensitized to it. Just really, even though I was in a place with a minority community of LGBTQ in Colorado Springs, you just seriously never think it's going to be you. I took my first real date with a woman out at Club Q. Then I started going by myself, and it was nice to be around other people like me, other people who are not heterosexual. Derek was there for that first date, and um, I remember going up to him to get around, and I was like, um, I'm actually on a first date. Do we look awkward? Do you think she likes me? And he's like, I don't know, you have to ask her yourself. And I'm like, this is gonna be my new friend. (laughs) I always tell everyone he was kind of a big brother to me in a sense of, He'd never just tell me what I wanted to hear. He'd always give it to me straight, and that's exactly what I needed sometimes. In about June of 2022, I started being a shot girl, someone who serves mostly jello shots throughout the club, and that really was helping with um, a lot of insecurities, social anxiety. It was kind of forcing me to get out of my patterns that was keeping me from making friends. I loved it. I loved working there. I mean, all jobs have their up and downs, but it became like a really close little family that I had on the weekends. I had just finished my quote-unquote shift. Two of my friends, it was literally their third time in. They just walked in. I'm like, okay, I'm done. Let's go out and smoke real quick on the patio. Went out and smoked. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go get my drink. I'll be right back. And then as I'm walking through the dance floor, I start hearing the noises. It was some rap song playing and I literally was like, hmm, those are really realistic. Like in my brain, I'm like, we have veterans here come here all the time. Like that's gotta be so triggering to them. And that's when I saw it. And I started running. I felt something hit me in the head, which I later learned was glass from a window. So I fell and crawled up the stairs and I made it to the patio and I was gonna start running for it. And I saw my fellow bartender, Michael, in the corner. So in my head I said, we go together. So I crouched down in front of him. We heard glass break. But I know in that moment, I was like, at least I'm shielding him. I remember him asking, is it over? And I'm like, we have to wait. Because we both saw Derek um, on the floor. It felt like hours sitting there, but it was probably a minute. (laughs) Till finally, the gunshots had stopped and immediately went to Derek. I told him how much... We loved him and no one can make my drink like him and I'm never going to be able to have my favorite drink anymore and many more expletives. Finally the cops came in and I just remember someone came and uh, started doing CPR 
I remember him asking me to, like, how's he feel, listen to his heart, and I, I didn't really hear anything, but I kind of lied. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's still beating. Keep going. Like, I think he's, he's still here. I already, I already knew. It's something that will stay with me forever and still affects me and probably will for the rest of my life, but no one deserves to go along. I really miss him. <laughs> I remember someone asked me, like, well, what would you say to people who haven't lived through that? And my answer was, learn first aid, because you really never know. Because I put all of my basic first aid training that I'd ever learned in my whole life to use that night. And it's been months of guilt and feeling like I didn't do enough, but it's also, as my therapist reminds me, I'm not an EMT. <laughs> right now I'm a bartender and it took a lot of soul searching to see if I wanted to go back into a bar environment. It's definitely been weirdly healing to go into a bar and go to work in a bar and everything be fine and nothing bad happened. <laughs> so I just wanna go do my job live life as normally as I can while still giving myself the grace of, yeah, uh, you were already a little sensitive to loud noises, now you're hypersensitive to loud noises and was definitely in a very low place at, at that time. I'm not as done with living as I thought I was. stories show how surviving a mass shooting doesn't end when the court appearances are over and the doctor visits get more spread out. Another friend of Derek Rump's at the club that night was John Arcidiano. John learned a lot from Derek and from Daniel Aston, who also died. The day after it happened, I just got in my car, packed a bag. Uh, I, would, I went up to Denver for a few days and stayed with friends there. And one of the best things that they did for me, which I, I've thanked them for, is, you know, they gave me a couple days to, like, kind of go through my emotions and be very depressed and grieve and not really interact with people. And they were like, okay, enough is enough. We're going to reintroduce you to queer spaces so that you are not forever jaded. And so they took me to a couple of the queer-owned bars throughout Denver. I just remember there was moments that I had to step out or I had an emotional breakdown or um, I would dissociate completely. I'd sit there and I'd just look around at all the people and I'd think to myself, these people have no idea what could happen right now. They're all in here having a good time, laughing, 
and they don't realize somebody literally could come in and ruin everything in, in less than 30 seconds. And that's all I could think about to myself. But at the end of the day, I think that it saved me years of trauma and potential for never going back to those spaces because of what happened. When I first moved here, it was September of 2021. And um, like I have no friends, no family, nothing out here. So it was a really big move for me. And my first visit to Club Q was on Thanksgiving because I work in the restaurant industry, so I wasn't able to go home for Thanksgiving. So I found a bar that was open on Thanksgiving and I went in there and that was my beginnings of Club Q, my first introduction with Derek. And what Club Q became to me was monumental from that moment forward. And it wasn't just the bar itself, it was Derek and Daniel that brought that light to this community. They could pull anybody together. They were the people that intertwined with everybody. I saw Derek, you know, introduce people just to start talking because somebody was alone at the bar. It taught me a valuable lesson coming out of the New York queer scene, how a small community can really thrive in a town that may not necessarily always think that they're the best people. I remember the second weekend, there was still reports coming out about it. And I remember going through and reading what people were saying on Facebook, comments about it, about this is ridiculous, stop reporting about it, who cares if the f***s died, you know, this is getting old, you're perpetuating this whole gay movement. And that just goes to show you how much work we still have to do in acceptance as a society. Um, and how cold people can truly be because while this may not directly impact them, my life is forever changed and I will never be the same person and I don't know if I will ever be normal again. And these people get to go on living their lives, but I will always know the nasty comment that I read about why you're still covering this story when I literally watch my friend bleed out on the floor and die right in front of me. Um, I work in the restaurant industry. This has been my whole life. You know, I've done this for 15 years and now I look at it and I'm like, you were so good at this once upon a time and now you struggle with the things that you used to be amazing or excel at. Massive panic attacks can come on at any moment. I've been on my floor here in the middle of a busy restaurant and I've had a massive panic attack and I've had to step off the floor. You wanna think that you're okay and you try to go on living your life, but your life is never gonna be the same. There's no normalcy anymore because your privacy and your sense of safety has completely been violated on every level imaginable. And it's all because of who I am as a human. And that, that's, a, that's a hard pill to swallow. There are many of us who do not want Club Q to reopen. The reality is you cannot ask for our money from the LGBTQIA plus community if you're not gonna stand up and be a strong voice for our community. And the owner of that bar has done nothing other than opening his bar. There's not many queer spaces in this city. You were a pillar and you've done nothing. I think the only thing that you know I can say in all of this is the fact that you never think you're going to go through an event like this. I think that what I want people to know is something of this magnitude changes you to the core. There really is a part of me that mentally or 
internally died that night that I will never see again. And it's really trying to learn how to rebuild my life and what is the new norm and figuring out who I am from this point forward. Um, because something of that magnitude, it changes you forever and ever. In the time since we talked, John has moved on from the restaurant business. He's now working at the recently opened LGBTQ Community Center in Colorado Springs. You heard John say how he doesn't want Club Q to reopen. But the owner has announced they will construct a memorial at the site and that they do intend to reopen Club Q at a new location under a new name. Like John, that's not what Ashton Gamblin was hoping for. She worked the front door at Club Q. You'll hear her talk about the reopening and the plea deal that prosecutors reached with the shooter, who was then sentenced to five consecutive life terms, plus 2,000 additional years in prison. Ashton herself was shot in her arms and chest. My husband was deployed. I was in the middle of trying to set up a welcome home party and things like that. And when I finally was able to talk to him, all I said was, baby, come home, and started crying. It was the first time I cried. I never passed out, never passed out. I remember all of that, unfortunately. The ambulance ride, I wish I could forget, or that I was unconscious for that, because, you know, I rode with my shooter. I was in the ambulance with two other victims, and they pulled one of them out, separated the husband and the wife. They pulled one of them out and put him in. There's some days that somebody will say something about my scars, or I will see somebody staring. And for the most part, it actually usually turns into a conversation, and they ask, you know, what happened? I'm like, that's cool, I got shot at Club Q. And they're like, hmm. There's that look of, I shouldn't have asked. Because, <laughs> I mean, I will be blunt with them about it. Like, I don't care if you're going to stare, you're going to get told what happened. Because don't think I'm not, I wasn't a confident person before. Struggled with body confidence. And my scars, can't hide them. Tricare is not paying for anything. In normal people terms, I didn't shoot myself. In Tricare terms, a third party caused my injuries and the government wants to know where they can recover their funds. And if they can't recover their funds, then I am responsible for paying them. Yeah, I actually still have the letters. Everything I do is just putting out fires. Fire after fire. Close the damn club. I don't care what you do with it. Level it. Leave it the hell alone. You open the bathhouse the day of our friend's funeral. Oh, there was no damage to it. I don't care that there's no damage. You opened it up while we're putting our friend in the ground that was killed feet away because Daniel was at the front door. I want to scream and yell and fix things. 
and I don't know how much fixing I'm doing. When I get told to like go back to normal, first of all, I'm scared of normal. I wanna say it was right around the five month mark. I just kind of looked out the car window, saw the mountains and looked at my husband and I was like, I don't wanna be here. You know, doctor's appointments finally started slowing down, not as many events and fundraising and we had an opportunity to leave. My husband had orders to leave and we decided that we were gonna stay here for the trial. So we went through the process of getting them canceled. We'll probably be here another two to three years. I could have left in October. Um, it was maybe a week or two before they announced plea. And I had a conversation and when they told me about it and I said, you guys realize what you just did to me? I had these canceled because I thought we were going to trial. And not only did you delay it, but you didn't tell us why. And then you finally tell us, you know, there's a plea deal. And I just had everything changed so I could be here for a trial that's non-existent. One, I wanted him to face what he's done. But two, for me, I personally would have loved to have just seen evidence, seen something to grasp a reason as to why. I asked the Colorado Springs Police and Fire Departments about the ambulance ride Ashton took with the shooter. They said in a situation where a bunch of people are injured, their priority is to get them to advanced medical care as quickly as possible. I also asked TRICARE about Ashton's medical bills, but they didn't respond. The four people you've heard are only a few of the dozens of people injured at Club Q. Each one of those people, as well as their friends and their family members, has an individual experience. Thomas, Svetlana, John, and Ashton are not a complete group. They can't represent everyone whose lives have changed. They're just sharing four distinct stories. Each person who was affected will decide when and if and how they share their story in their own way. For now, these four give us a better sense of what it means to survive. I hope that they and the five people who were killed are the ones who will be the most remembered from this tragedy. And maybe it will give us a deeper compassion for what it means to be a survivor. Reporter Abigail Beckman from CPR's partner, KRCC. This episode of Colorado In-Depth was edited by KRCC's Andrea Chalfin and by me, Rachel Estabrook. Music from Universal Production Music, sound design by Abigail and Pedro Lombrano. Never miss CPR's documentary and investigative reporting by following Colorado In-Depth in your podcast app. This is CPR News.